1: Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit.
2: You
0: can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Joe Weisenthal.
1: Joe, it's been a while since we talked emerging markets.
0: It really has been, and probably to our detriment, because there is a lot going on with EM, the commodities boom, the U.S. dollar boom, the tightening cycle, inflation. There's the uh, distress in Sri Lanka, among others. So there's a lot to go. There's a lot that's been going on.
1: Right, and every time you see the U.S. raise interest rates, you generally see some pain in emerging markets because yeah. the dollar goes up, um, and the foreign currency payments that governments who have borrowed in the dollar have to pay. Those go up. And it just feels like at the moment with everything that's going on, uh, and you mentioned the commodities boom, normally a commodities boom would be great for emerging markets. But this time, it seems to come with a lot of imported inflation. Yes. So this time, it seems like a really toxic mix for EM.
0: And like acute shortages. So Mm. you could have a commodities boom, and it's like, okay, there are a bunch of commodity producing countries seeing big uh, you know cash increase in their... uh, uh, imports or their their cash flows right now. But, you know, if you're a country that doesn't have much domestic food or a country that doesn't have much domestic wheat specifically, and there's a food, uh, grain shortage, then it st- is a very uh, distressing time.
1: Yeah, a very toxic mix politically yes. as well. And of course, the other big thing that's going on Is Russia. Right. And we've had lots of people expecting Russia to default on its bonds. That seems almost certain to happen now, given that the US Treasury has imposed even more restrictions on trading in the secondary market of the debt. They've also stopped investors from accepting bond payments from Russia. So it seems like a default is definitely going to happen. Which means, of course, that we need to talk about yeah. what all of this means. For Let's get going. Space. All right. Without further ado, I am very pleased to say we really have the perfect guest to discuss. We are going to be speaking with Jay Newman. He is a former portfolio manager at Elliott, very instrumental in uh, Elliott's pursuit of Argentina and all the drama that happened there. He's a sovereign debt specialist in general, uh, now turned novelist, and his book is uh, called Under Money. That's out now. Jay, welcome so much to the show.
2: Tracy, thank you. And thank you, Joe.
0: Thanks for coming on.
1: So maybe uh, given your decades of experience in EM, maybe just to begin with, we could ask the big question. How bad is it right now for EM? And what is the, the most striking historical analogy or parallel that you would compare it to? I think
2: it's almost the perfect storm for EM. And... The only real comparison I can draw is um, from the very beginning of third world debt crises, which is the 80s. Um, The Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act was passed in 1976. The State Immunities Act in England in 1977. And then we saw a huge, huge volume of lending. It's the the time when Walter Riston famously said, to excuse lending to developing countries, he said, countries don't go bankrupt, <laughs> which is completely accurate and totally useless uh, mm-hmm. if you're a creditor. But what we saw there was a period in which something like 25 countries defaulted. Uh, and Sorry,
0: and what what years was the- This was
2: in, the defaults started in the late 70s, but they extended into the 80s. Uh, and they weren't resolved really into the 90s. Uh, it, uh, Of course, in the case of Argentina, which went on even right. longer. Um, but we're talking about a uh, a period that could be very very stressful and distressing for uh, developing country borrowers
0: just going back actually before we even get too much on the present why did 25 countries default
2: uh, they defaulted because markets closed to them and that's what typically happens uh, the initial defaults in Poland and in Mexico made lenders very nervous and when it came time to roll over the debt there was there were no takers that's what's happening today. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's almost an inevitable process. When, uh, when things are good and money is easy, people right. pile in and the underwriters um, find you know, plenty of buyers. But all of a sudden, when one country defaults, let's take Lebanon, let's take uh, Sri Lanka, which mm-hmm. you mentioned, uh, everyone says, whoa, what about country X and country Y and country Z? And then they become nervous, and then the debt can't get rolled.
1: Is it inevitable in the current situation that investors start pushing back? And I mean, the reason I ask is because how many times has Argentina defaulted now and someone out there is always buying the new bonds that it issues? It feels like people, investors learn their lesson for, you know, maybe (laughs) a month and then the next year they forget it again and people are buying EM indiscriminately.
2: It's uh, it's, it's. um it is a complicated ecosystem and it's uh it's rotation because what happens in the first instance is that the buyers tend to be real money buyers mm. uh, retail investors through mutual funds that are responding to uh advertisements you've, you've seen those ads in the in the paper which show past performance and they and they always show the best performing funds and periodically those are emerging market funds mm. and that's when sales pick up. And the, uh, the, the mutual fund investor and buyer is, is driven by indices. So there's always a buyer if the country's in the index, whether it's Argentina or Russia, those bonds have to get um, included. And that's why they're bought. Then what happens is after default, they get puked. And other more opportunistic investors like hedge funds come in and the cycle starts over again.
0: You, know, you mentioned that quote in the beginning that uh, countries don't go bankrupt. And as you say, it's maybe true, but completely irrelevant to an actual creditor of the country, and whether they're going to get paid back or not. Why do countries choose to default? I mean, in theory, you know, mm. country, uh, uh, a government has certain choices it can make. It can cut back on uh, domestic spending to prioritize lending, what are the conditions that tend to precede a government making the choice like, you know what, we're not going to, we are, what, what, what the, why do they do that?
2: It's, uh, so, so many, so many uh, questions nestled and mm. nested in what you just asked, Joe. It's always political. Countries don't typically borrow with the intention of default. But on some level, uh, it's always in the back of the mind of a politician, because they borrow to uh, get money they can use for their own purposes whatever those are whether they're for legitimate infrastructure and and building or corrupt purposes which in many cases they are they uh, they are but it's a political decision and when the it's only when the the money is cut off or threatened to be cut off that political figures in borrowing countries decide that well maybe it's not worth the trouble hmm.
1: is it is part of it? The idea that politicians are satisfying a domestic constituency. And so foreign investors kind of are a very easy demographic to just, you know, leave out and say, well, we're going to screw over the foreign investors in order to satisfy our population.
2: Easier and easier for a variety of reasons. One you've mentioned, which is that uh, markets uh, have short memories. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's certainly true. Uh, but the other piece is that when a country runs into trouble, the multilateral organizations uh, all rally around it and, the, and actually other governments rally around it. So if uh, in the case of Sri Lanka is a, just a case in point, we're going to see, we will see uh, the IMF and the World Bank uh, and the Asian Development Bank and uh, the G7 and the G20 all saying, oh, poor Sri Lanka. Uh, not blaming Sri Lanka for uh, for their problems, but uh, looking for an opportunity to fleece foreign foreign lenders, uh, and that that's that is a consistent pattern. What's different today, uh, and I, I know we'll get to talk about this, is the role of China, because hmm. China is increasingly uh, has the whip hand in essentially in developing country lending.
1: So explain that yeah. further. What exactly is the role of China in emerging markets and how much does the outlook for EM defaults depend on what China chooses to do or not do?
2: I think uh, China is the critical element in in emerging market lending. Uh, the One Belt, One Road initiative uh, has meant that China has uh, provided money, either loans or investments in Dozens of countries around the world for ports, for rails, for uh, communications infrastructure, you name it, the Chinese are promoting it and, uh, and lending money to developing countries. So China has become, and this, this is the critical element, China's become a huge lender and investor in developing countries, but no one knows how big they are. No one knows. I mean, the Chinese know, but no one else. Because the contracts under which they invest are secret. I've, I've asked uh, on many occasions to see a copy of these loan agreements, and it's always, shh, shh, hmm. we can't talk about that. It's, it's part of our agreement. And I don't think the, even the IMF has a clue what the scale of those investments are, which means that when you face a restructuring, you've got a creditor, a very aggressive and important creditor, China, which doesn't want to take a discount at all. So you have a super senior element there that we've never seen before in the history of EM lending.
1: I was about to ask, what kind of creditor is China? I know it's hard to tell because we haven't really seen them enter a massive default cycle since they ramped up their lending. And you're completely right that it's hard to tell the scale of that lending. And Bloomberg has made attempts at various points in time to put a number on it. It's very, very non-transparent. But what sort of indication do we have of how they might behave in a distressed situation?
2: Well, how they behave in pretty much every commercial situation uh, they're right and you're wrong hmm. and they're implacable uh, foes on many levels but particularly when it comes to the debt it's it's just I'd like to just go back to this very little geeky but I think important point which is can you imagine a sitting down at a negotiating table with a group of creditors you've got the IMF the World Bank uh, other multilateral institutions and you've got different creditor groups um, banks industrial lenders investors uh, and bondholders, everyone's at the table, everyone's documents are on the table, except for China. So you have this huge force, you know, in the room and outside the room, that won't tell you how much they owe, and isn't willing to take a discount to make things make things fit together. Hmm. So it's almost in that climate. It's actually it actually becomes, in my view, impossible. To have restructurings that really get countries out of the woods and put them on a strong financial path, because you've got one. It used to be that we we would complain about the IMF being uh, insisting on being super senior. Now you've got a creditor that is placing itself super senior to the IMF.
1: Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit.
0: You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something uh, that we talk about on the show from time to time is the sort of difference between you know, the financial cycle and the economic cycle and you know what we've been talking about so far it seems like very much the financial cycle and you mentioned you know you have this situation where one country or two countries default suddenly all the money pulls back or in the flip uh, a bunch of retail investors see that uh, you know look and open their copy of barons and see that on the bet best uh, last five years that some em funded like yeah i'll put my money in there what is the so there's this global clearly downturn in the sort of liquidity cycle, the financial cycle is clearly in retreat. What's the macro cycle, like the sort of like actual like underlying econ cycle and how much stress is that putting countries under?
2: I think the what's what's happening uh, even in the last three months with the prices of energy and food stocks uh, is something we haven't seen in a long, long time. And it puts a lot of pressure on every country because the first, the first obligation of, of a government is to is to keep its people warm and fed. Mm -hmm. And I think to the extent that that's put at risk, and it is at risk now in in dozens of countries, countries really have no choice but to prioritize those needs over payment of foreign debt. It doesn't mean that they don't respect foreign debt or intend to restructure it or repay it at some point in time. But I think in the near term, uh, they'll make uh, a correct political decision for themselves to delay, defer, or deny those payments.
1: So Joe asked a question that I thought was interesting, which is, why do countries default? And I want to ask a, a similar question about incentives and decision-making. Uh, but you were at Elliott for a very long time. How did you decide what distressed investments to make? Hmm. Because you targeted you know, some very specific, not just countries, but very specific bonds issued by those countries.
2: There are, there are a few... Um a few really important elements to uh, any investing, and particularly sovereign debt investing. One is that the and one is that the contract has to be strong. Hmm. And sovereign bond contracts have gotten much much weaker over the last twenty years. Really, a concerted effort on the part of the official sector uh, and the G seven. The Europeans have been at the uh, at the forefront of this diluting covenants and making it more difficult to enforce in the event of a default. But the, the most critical element is your uh, basic financial analysis of the country. And, uh, and Tracy, you're absolutely right. You know, at Elliott, uh, we were extremely selective in the debt that we bought, because you really had to believe, you always have to believe mm. when, you're, when you're buying sovereign debt, that the debtor is capable of uh, honoring its contracts. And so those are the two critical elements. Is the debtor able to pay? And contractually, uh, is there a way to um, keep them at the table?
1: So I have to ask: Would you have bought Russian bonds with that in mind?
2: <laughs> I have never bought a Russian bond. I never would buy a Russian bond. <laughs> Russian, Russian, um, and in fact, I hadn't. I hadn't looked until recent days. I hadn't looked at the Russian bond contract for a very long time, and I'd, I'd forgotten this: that um, Russian debt, Russia does not waive. Sovereign immunity. Mm. So the critical element of contemporary bond contracts is a waiver of sovereign immunity, which means that you can sue uh, by agreement. But you can
1: you, actually go to court you can and discuss court. the issue. Yeah.
2: Exactly. You can go to court typically in either the U.S. or the U.K., mm. or both, and that is uh, an essential element. The other One of the other critical pieces is not just waiving immunity but agreeing where you can be sued. Mm. So if Russia says... I don't waive immunity. We're back to a world that we haven't seen in sovereign debt since the 50s, uh, well before the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and the State Immunities Act, where the sovereign is a beneficiary of absolute immunity. It's what sovereigns are. They they do what they want when they want. They pay what they want when they want to pay it. And that's the position that Russia staked out for itself.
0: Why was there... I mean, we had a we talked about Russian debt, I think, back March here early on after the invasion. But, you know, we talked about, you know, the fact that the, there weren't many covenants, that there were all kinds of things buried in the language that seemed to be sort of favorable for Russia all those years. Even after the invasion of Crimea, I think, which was in mm-hmm. 2014. Mm-hmm. Yes. Why was there still so much willingness between that period when it was clear that the country would be willing to be a military aggressor and engage in activities that people would associate with a prior state? Why up and for basically another eight years after that, did there, and then the conditions that you just mentioned about not waiving sovereign immunity why was there so much willingness for the, all those years on the part of buyers to continue buying Russian bonds in your view
2: because Russia was a great payer they they kept paying throughout uh, even after the sanctions imposed you know post Crimea in 2014. And they showed no indication of not intending to honor their obligations. So Russia looked like a like like a strong credit. And in fact, Russia even in the beginning of this of this crisis, post January February twenty fourth, Russia insisted and did make payments. Mm. So Russia really uh, in it appears to all intents to intend to be a responsible debtor. Uh, right now, it's it's um, it by because of sanctions, it's foreclosed from doing that.
0: I'm going to go back to something you said about Sri Lanka, and you're like, okay, there's a default, but the world comes together and all these uh, international institutions, the IMF, the G7, the Asian Development Bank, etc., and they try to help Sri Lanka out. It's not Sri Lanka's fault that they're in distress. And when you said that, I clearly got the impression that you think that this is a bad system or that this sort of generosity towards uh, Sri Lanka in the wake of a default is not productive or misplaced. Can you talk about your view a little bit more on that? I mean, it's been a pretty tough two years. There was a pandemic. Then there's been surging inflation. Why shouldn't all these public or official institutions take the view that Sri Lanka got into a bad place and they need help?
2: If we go back to basics, and um, I wrote a little piece about this that I called Unsafe at Any Price, comparing sovereign debt to the Corvair. Sovereign debt, bar, the idea of a sovereign borrowing in a currency that isn't its own right. is fundamentally flawed. It's a really bad idea. But the entire structure of the sovereign debt industry is, you know, it, it supports the idea that it's, you know, that it's not a bad idea. But if you take the case of Sri Lanka, if Sri Lanka had borrowed in its own currency rather than in the dollar or in the euro, it wouldn't have a problem because it could just print its own currency. Now, the the response to that, and we get this all the time, people saying, well, but they couldn't borrow if they they couldn't borrow that much money unless they agreed to borrow dollars. And isn't that just the point?
0: So would you argue, therefore, I mean, you know, again, I'm really struck by this idea that flows often start because retail investors see the ads in the newspapers, that really this whole system of a sort of like public... Financialized sovereign debt market, particularly for EMs, is sort of flawed to the core.
2: Completely, completely flawed, completely rotten. Uh, if it were, if it were up to me uh, yeah. and I had my magic wand, I would repeal the sovereign immunities act and I'd repeal mm-hmm. the, the state immunities act, and I would I would go back to the principle of absolute immunity because if you're if you're looking at absolute immunity, and maybe the Russians have the right idea, perhaps not borrowing in in a currency not their own. But the right idea in saying, you're looking at if you look at me as a sovereign, I'll pay you what I want when I want, and you have to trust me. And that would put uh, investors on a very different footing. It wouldn't make the underwriting community at all happy about it, because it would mean that they couldn't sell as many bonds. But wouldn't that be psychiatry?
0: It definitely sounds like you'd probably get less boom-bust cycles. Yep. It would be harder to sell debt, probably during the boom, I guess, but... You don't get these huge swings and flows.
2: I think that's exactly right. Could you
1: talk a little bit about ESG and how that relates to sovereign debt? Because, you know, we were talking about the Russian bonds. And one of the things that stands out is that if you read the risk factors, it's just a a litany of bad stuff that Putin has done. Basically saying that he's done a bunch of bad stuff. There might be sanctions. He could do more bad stuff. And yet you had big investors who ostensibly care about esg and social values who bought a lot of the debt and at the same time now you're seeing a lot of people talk about esg as a sort of political consideration so do you want to lend to russia if it's considered an enemy of the united states and things like that
2: i think the the short answer to that is no I think a lot of people are not going to. uh, A lot of people will be taking ESG into account, and there'll be less of a market for certain uh, debtors. But it's um, if if you're going to cast the ESG net over developing countries generally, you're going to run into trouble because we're talking about countries that that on average, and it's unfair to um, to malign people as an average. uh, Governance is poor, and in many cases. Corruption is rampant. And at the same time, the countries are producers of natural resources that are desperately needed by Western industrial countries. So people are willing to turn a blind eye to all those factors because of the, the geopolitics and the geoeconomics.
0: So do you think we will see I mean, okay, so so far in this cycle, what have we seen? We've seen Sri Lanka, it has defaulted. Anyone else? Do you see uh, Lebanon. Lebanon. Do you expect to see several more coming? I mean, if you say this is... You know, I think in your first answer, you said a perfect storm, which is a phrase, and Tracy and I know it every day. That, <laughs> so every episode every we episode do now. These days, whatever it is, it's copper's the in storm. a perfect storm, the dollar's in a perfect storm, tech stocks Wheat are in a perfect storm. Yeah, 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 it's in a perfect yeah. storm. The mo- there are a lot of perfect storms uh, happening right now. I mean, do, would you expect to see this? The, the, just the absolute number of defaults pick up significantly?
2: I would expect it to. Uh, to and, and I think I think it's actually what you're describing is actually one big perfect storm right because right. all these things are related yeah um, and it's uh because we haven't seen uh, this kind of a, a boom and a bust in financial markets uh where this kind of a bust in what about 15 years uh, and maybe on the tech side over 20 years so it's there is so many elements uh, that conspire against sovereign debtors continuing to be able to pay what they owe
1: So you touched on this a number of times, but would you expect a bust of a significant scale to lead to some sort of significant change in the way emerging market debt markets actually work? I mean, would you see the balance of power shift more to the creditors away from the issuers? Would you expect less foreign currency debt to be issued in general and things like that? Or do we just have a default cycle and then we just go back to the way it always has been or the way it's been for the past couple of decades?
2: Um, I don't expect there to be a lot of fundamental change. I think we'll get through this period. And the, the other important piece is that the absolute amount of developing country debt is rather small. In international financial terms, it's not big enough to in and of itself cause a problem, except for the debtors themselves who get trapped in a cycle that takes many years to, to work through. But what is somewhat different in, in this cycle, and we saw it two years ago in the case of Argentina in their most recent restructuring, is that the bond contracts are so weak. Hmm. So creditors realize that they don't have a lot of leverage. And because they don't have a lot of leverage, they agree to deals that are... That are um, you know, much, much better for the debtor, and much worse for creditors. And I don't see that changing. I think if Ooh. if if investors study uh, the details, they'll realize that these are not uh, the the bond contract isn't a safe place to place right. your bet. Uh, history being what it is and markets being what they are, I don't think we're going to really see much change.
1: So you mentioned Argentina, and you know, that was an enormously profitable trade for Elliot famously. And you just spoke about the importance of actually looking at contracts, looking at the bond documentation, and sifting through it. What was the smartest move that you pulled at Elliott Mm -hmm. when it came to Argentina? What were you most proud of? And please be as technical as you want, (laughs) because I have some specific things in mind, but I'd love to hear what you're thinking.
2: I think that it's uh, it's easy to, to be grandiose and take credit for the Argentine restructuring, but in fact... Many creditors worked together in that, and I think that one of the things that, that I'm most pleased with is the, the ability of the creditor group to really stick together and be thoughtful about what was possible in terms of an Argentine restructuring. And that collegiality persisted to the ver- very end through the, through the restructuring, and ultimately resulted in restructuring that was extremely good for Argentina and extremely good for, for the creditors that remained standing. But a lot of creditors, of course, were peeled off along mm. the way by the the Kirchner's uh, aggressive tactics and, and populism. But I think that the idea of collective action is something that I think about a lot in terms of restructurings generally and emerging market restructurings, uh, you know, in particular. And you see you see that uh, ability to act collectively fading the diversity of creditors in Argentina, I think produced a, in, in most recent restructuring, produced a very bad result uh, with you know, massive debt forgiveness that was completely uncalled for because creditors really couldn't agree amongst themselves. And this is, this is what I call the, the just say no moment. That when you're faced with a situation in which it's you have no leverage, and the debtor is being aggressive and obstructive and obstreperous, which is, defines Argentina. Sometimes you just have to back away from the table. But that is the most difficult thing to do because there is a propensity on the part of participants in any situation to want to stick with it mm. and remain at the table. Uh, and sometimes you just can't. But that's the, that's the one element that if creditors could really understand that, embrace it, and resort to it, it would be much better.
1: Sorry, I have a really basic question. But you know, if a country defaults in the market, they're supposed to be penalized in some way for that, in theory, right? People are supposed to say, well, they're not a reliable borrower, and so we're not going to lend to them again. If you're an investor or a creditor, and you back away from a negotiation, or you don't do something that, the sovereign issuer would have liked you to do. Do you get shunned in the future from debt sales or do you get penalized in any way?
2: I think you do, you do get shunned. I think Argentina uh, is currently being shunned, will be shunned. But I think it takes a long time for markets to develop that kind of muscle memory. Hmm. Uh, and uh, in the case of Argentina, it's taken decades and decades uh, for people to realize that fundamentally Argentina is not a reliable counterparty. I think for most other countries that don't have that kind of history of aggressive defaults and repeated defaults, investors are willing to give new governments a chance. I think the question is going to be whether, in the case of Argentina, when and if there is a change of regime, hmm. markets will give that new regime a chance. The, the Macri administration is perhaps one reason that investors shouldn't jump in too quickly. Because Macri was there for a very short period of time. He did restructure the debt. He did bring Argentina back to capital markets. But as soon as he was gone, Argentina was back in the tank.
1: Hmm. But what about investors? Do they get penalized as well if you don't you know, do what a government wants or if you walk away from the negotiating table?
2: Uh, we haven't seen that happen. Okay.
0: How do you know when that moment is there that it's time to walk away? I mean, I assume this is what separates the elites from the right— but- well, what is it? How do you know in that moment just there? they're like, you're not just say no.
2: In the case of Argentina, as the discussion went on, it moved to uh, Argentina saying, we're going to pay what we're going to pay. And creditors then, at the behest of, of some of us who were encouraging a restructuring of the bond contract, some creditors said, well, if you're going to give us a 50% haircut, uh, even though you may not need it, and even though you haven't put forth a fiscal plan uh, that describes your capacity to pay. If you're going to do all those things, at least give us new bond terms that are going to be um, create what I call a super bond, a bond that is actually enforceable and would be senior to any other kinds of debt. And what Argentina said flat out was, absolutely not. We're going to view the same garbage covenants and the same garbage paper that we're currently sitting at this table talking about. That would have been a moment to say, "We can't. We can't live this way. We can't live with a a default, a massive haircut, and a bond contract that makes it completely optional whether you ever pay us another dime again."
1: Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit.
0: You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can you explain what you mean by the restructuring was great for Argentina too?
2: Well, I think it was great for Argentina in the sense that uh, Argentina now has a much more manageable level of debt. It's got a bond contract that really does make repayment uh, an option. It makes it can pay or not pay, depending upon its view of its financial situation uh, and its market access. So I think that it's um, Argentina uh, is for the moment in the catbird seat. Except that. It doesn't have the kind of market access it needs, and doesn't have the kind of credibility it needs. And one example of that is the uh, Vaca Muerta. So this huge formation of oil and gas—it's uh, shaped like—it's called Vaca Muerta, and I've, I've fractured the Spanish, but because it looks from the sky like a dead cow, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's a it's a massive reserve of hydrocarbons that should have been exploited, you know, through uh, through drilling, through pipelines, through uh, exports. Over the last uh, many decades, but because of Argentina's fractious politics, it hasn't been. So you have a you know a country as as ever in the case of Argentina that ought to be incredibly wealthy, right. that isn't because of its own peculiar uh, psychology.
1: Mm. I just remembered. I mean, they did issue that hundred-year bond. Remember, yeah.
0: which, which is now doing What's that? Do we have a quote?
1: on? The <laughs> it's- where, where is that
2: trading? I'd love to yeah. know. Yeah,
1: well, so this was going to be my next question. So it, it's trading terribly at the moment, um, largely because of duration. You would expect a bond at a 100 year maturity issued at a very low interest rate to have like a high duration risk. And as rates go up, it's going to get crushed. How much are the pure interest rate dynamics, you know, setting aside credit fundamentals, but just the dynamics of interest rates actually going up and increasing um, payments for emerging markets, how much is that a problem?
2: It's always, it's always a problem. That's I think you described that, Tracy, at the very beginning of, of the hour. As prices for new debt go up, mm. uh, the ability to refinance goes down, and that's where countries run into trouble but the the 100 year maybe we should think about 100 year bonds as a bellwether you know it's a bad sign <laughs> when somebody's able to borrow especially a country that doesn't have a 100 year history of borrowing can borrow for 100 years it's just that's just madness
1: so one of the things you're known for at Elliott is Basically, I'm thinking how to put this, but creative, creative solutions to pursuing uh, payouts. And I remember, for instance, you brought racketeering charges against a French bank. How do you and of course, there was the, the famous story of seizing the um, the Argentine naval ship and things like that. But how do you actually come up with those sorts of ideas for pursuing payouts? Because some of them are quite creative in the sense that not everyone... Well, no one had tried them before.
2: Most countries pay what they owe. And whether they pay it early on or later on, they have a willingness to actually make good on their obligations. So we're we're talking about the hardest cases making the worst law. Mm. And so the very few countries that have a kind of cultural indifference to making good on their obligations create a lot of uh, need. An opportunity for creditors. Hmm. Um, and so that's where the creativity comes in. When you, when you have a, a country that really doesn't want to pay what it owes, you're in a position where you just have to keep getting their attention. Hmm. And the, the Argentine saga, which, and again, it wasn't just Elliott Management, it was many firms that were involved in, in that over a long period of time. The goal was always to get Argentina to the table. Uh, because even though uh, many creative uh, attachments and arrests, you mentioned the Libertad, planes were arrested. In France today, the, the, the plane of the president of Congo uh, is under arrest and is about to be auctioned. Hmm. Uh, sometimes people have attached oil cargos. You have all, all sorts of creative uh, avenues. But debt cases don't get resolved through attachments and through execution against assets. They always get resolved through settlement. So the goal is always to get the attention of the debtor, Mm. but not push them away. Unfortunately, sometimes creditors do things that do end up pushing them away. And then the only opportunity is really regime change. And that is what happened in Argentina. While Cristina Kirchner was in charge, it had become impossible because she loved calling in creditors vultures and mm. she loved her stature as someone who was standing up against them.
1: Well, just on this note, I mean, is there anything that you regret doing or something that you would have done differently mm. with the benefit of hindsight?
2: Uh, as an investor, you always regret not buying more of the things that uh, <laughs> that did well.
0: <laughs> I want to actually go back to uh, – the discussion of the the novelty that is uh, China's role as the sort of very senior creditor. You know when you th- when when I you know the F- One Belt One Road initiative first sort of came on my radar something. I thought about it. It seemed like well this is like you know a strategic act of foreign policy. So it's like yes you invest uh, you know China invests in infrastructure in numerous uh, countries, but you know for part like foreign policy influence and to build up a trading partner and so forth. Is it surprising that instead uh, it's taken such a hard line simply on the question of being paid back? Because if you do think like, okay, is this about or I would have thought that if this is about extending China's foreign policy reach or extending it's just sort of deepening its relationships with countries all over the world, across Asia, across Africa, that it would have been more conciliatory on the restructuring side to maintain those relationships.
2: Uh, um, I agree with you that, that that would make sense for China if it wants to be part of um, you know our current Western liberal tradition and system. But China gives no indication of wanting to be part of that system. China has, I think, a very different view. It has a different system. It wants to go its own way. And if it can disadvantage and crush other creditors in the course of restructurings, cool that appears to be what it wants to do. I think we really can't talk enough about China and the role of China in developing economies on on every level uh, from the perspective of controlling natural resources, from the perspective of being a direct foreign investor, from the perspective of being a lender. China will be the dominant dominant question for the next several decades um, unless things change. And it's unclear What could cause anything to change because China still has the ability to uh, pump out huge amounts of money and people to develop projects around the world?
0: Should governments in the U.S. and Europe be more proactive or be thinking more aggressively than they are about not ceding all of this influence in various developing markets to China?
2: I I, I think there's no question that that's the case, but... It's, uh, can you imagine uh, Western governments being, having a cohesive and a coherent no. policy? On anything, on any topic. <laughs> on, on any. Right. Let alone
0: um, a African development
2: policy. So, so let's just take the simplest possible question, right? You're, you're a, you're the G7 and you know that China is, is the big dog and you know they've invested and lent huge amounts of money. Yeah. You just want to see the contracts. You just want some transparency. Right so western governments should be insisting as a condition of any restructuring that involves sovereign debt whether it's private sector or public sector that that all the creditors come to the table and and put their put out their cards and show what they've got and that would seem to be a, a very <clears throat> easy position to coalesce around but will it be
1: hmm. Just on the topic of China, and this is something else that's come up recently in a different way, but there is a sense out there that some of China's lending has been exploitative in one way or another. So we haven't seen the contracts exactly, but there's a suspicion that, for instance, a country might be giving up some portion of sovereign independence in order to get money from China to build a massive port something like that. And we've also seen some noises around, um, you know, on the other side of the world, uh, Haiti and the idea of reparations. And you've already mentioned the V word, which is vulture funds. And when it comes to distressed debt investors, there is a sense that they can be exploitative in some way and they're wringing money out of poor nations. How would you respond to that criticism? And how are you thinking around the idea of, of reparations for sovereign debt injustices in general?
2: The word that comes to mind when we embark on this kind of a, a conversation is the C word, hmm. which is corruption. And I don't, I don't think there has ever been a, um, a sovereign debt crisis or sovereign debt problems where corruption isn't an underlying issue. And this is another place where Western governments could take a very insistent role, a place where the IMF could take a very insistent role and, and focus on corruption. And not just the existence of it or the past effects of it, but the possibility of recovering ill-gotten gains. I wonder, right. I, I thinking out loud now, I wonder whether what's happening with sanctions um, in the case of Russia might be a watershed. Uh, because Western governments have become very willing to sanction the the vast numbers of individuals mm. around Vladimir Putin, go after their their bank accounts, their companies, notably their yachts and their planes. And at this point, they, at just at this point, most have just been seized. They haven't been confiscated. But I've never been involved in a in a sovereign debt situation in which. The, if you were really thinking about the, the balance sheet of a country, corruption and ill-gotten gains shouldn't have been an issue. And just if we just imagine a world in which creditors became, in a way, private attorneys general— and were licensed to go after people that had been milking a country for uh, decade after decade, which unfortunately is all too prevalent. You just have to look at the Transparency International uh, rankings to understand that. Whether the whole dynamic wouldn't change in a very positive way?
0: Just to push this a little further, in theory, if you have a country that has a highly corrupt government, you know, and then you have a, uh, a regime change. I mean, I guess part of the argument seems to me that, well, the citizens of the country shouldn't be, like, punished in perpetuity for years, or future governments shouldn't have to make this decision about, well, are we going to pay back the debt of the past corrupt government, or are we going to feed our uh, people, or are we going to build hospitals, are we going to build infrastructure? I mean, it seems like you still have this, like, problem where, okay, even if you were to root out this corruption, that the citizens who or just there, often probably exploited themselves in many cases, are then still paying the price for I mean this gets to the odious debt conversation that we've had around Iraq and others, but are still paying the price regardless of their culpability.
2: It's bad government is a is unfortunately a huge, huge problem. Right. And uh, I'm I'm completely sympathetic to the idea that people that live in these in these horribly corrupt and opaque regimes are are punished. But how do you break the cycle?
0: It seems like, getting back to your other point, that the entire system of private investment in sovereign debt, particularly sovereign hard currency debt, is just deeply flawed. And it gets back to this idea it's like, why do we even have all of these private creditors out there in the first place, or such a large number of private creditors? Uh, at all in the role of sovereign finance.
2: Well, investors are, are fundamentally optimistic. And there's a whole other uh, level of investment that we haven't talked about, which is, and you just mentioned this, Joe, which is the foreign direct investment. And you have recent cases in particularly involving uh, India, world's you know largest democracy, which, uh, when it's faced with arbitration awards, because it's confiscated property, decides to vilify investors and avoid payment. Mm. So it's uh, it, it applies not just to debt, but to uh, foreign direct investment. And this fundamental optimism on the part of, of investors, because we are... You know, every every time you lend money or invest money, you're being optimistic about your your not just your own process and your own analysis, but the capacity and willingness of your investee and your or your uh, borrower to uh, honor their obligations. Mm. But the the point about reparations, this is it's it's an issue that's on the table. Uh, It's obviously being discussed, but I think. It can't be discussed in a vacuum, and it really has to be discussed in the context. And you look at a country like Haiti, where uh, elites have really destroyed that country by milking it consistently over decade after decade after decade. How can you talk about reparations without going after the, the elites that have stolen the country blind? This is how you get there? I'm not quite sure. But I know that you have to get there to have a fair and sensible conversation about all those questions.
1: All right, Jay, it's been so great having you on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, That's Jay Newman, formerly of Elliott and uh, the author of the novel Under Money in bookstores now. Jay, thank you so much. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. Joe, that was a really interesting conversation, I thought. And one of the things that stands out to me, and I know the benefit of hindsight is 2020, of course, but the Argentine 100-year bond, just this idea, whenever you see a country... Without a 100-year history of issuing debt, issuing for a century, yeah. that's a warning sign. It <clears throat> was a
0: really crazy time. I mean, I got like, you know, there was also the Austrian one, but like, okay, I understood. Time. I, that's just a l- normal long duration. As, trip as a half bond,
1: Austrian, or... we should leave Austria okay. alone, you know.
0: But yeah, there were the sort of two famous century bonds. I was also, I mean, there were a lot of interesting things. The The unique novelty. Well, actually, you know what I was really struck by mm. is uh, Jay's... Point that maybe this whole system of borrowing hard currency debt is flawed. And, you know, of course, (laughs) we've had the MMT conversations and all the people saying, well, you know, the first thing that these countries should do is stop borrowing in dollars, stop borrowing in currencies that they can't print themselves, whether they be dollars or euros. That would at least get you somewhere, some progress. So it's interesting to hear a uh, a veteran of the actual industry kind of say the same thing from the other perspective.
1: You managed to bring it to yeah, MMT, well, didn't there you? Go. All right, uh, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. okay this has been another episode of the All Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest on Twitter, Jay Newman. He's at Jay Newman. Follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez, at Carmen Arman. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening.